You are listening to Podco, making government work for us. Now, here are your hosts, Roy Leos, Luke Ashworth, and Stephen Tomlin. Hello, listeners. I'm Luke Ashworth. I'm Laura Leotes. And I'm Stephen Tomlin. And this is Podco, making government work for us. For the next hour, we'll be taking a deeper dive into politics and current affairs with the help of our guests. Our theme today is inequality. Why is it growing? What forms of inequality exist? What are the roots? What can be done to reverse this trend? What do you think? If you want to keep up to date on what we're doing, you can follow the show on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Podco1. Like our Facebook page at PodcoCHMR, and our email address is PodcoCHMR at gmail.com. We want to hear your feedback. This show is all about making government work for us. So we're here in St. John's, Newfoundland. We have a great ninth episode lined up for you today. In just a few minutes, we're going to be speaking with Carrie Claire Neal, an activist, former NDP candidate, master's arts uh, graduate in economics, Carrie has been a researcher with Barb Nieces on the Move Project and has been working with Dr. Tony Bang, who's a research chair in culture and economic transformation. Our first guest is Dr. Robin Whitaker, who is an associate professor in the Department of Anthropology and also the former president of MUNFA. Dr. Whitaker is an expert in political anthropology and her research has focused on problems with democracy, citizenship, and human rights, the politics of representation, and feminism. Before we go there, though, uh, we're going to have our conversation, our weekly news roundup. Again, nothing happening this week. What a news day we had with the, uh, I guess, Wet'suwet'en arrests, uh, the cancellation of the Tech Frontier Project, and the Supreme Court of Canada decision on the carbon tax. Nothing happening. And uh, don't forget the uh, the announcement as well from uh, Premier Kenny of Alberta on uh, the first law they're going to introduce will be one to, I think the way he put it was protect infrastructure. <laughs> so the police took um, action on a court in Justin, uh, injunction to remote, remove protesters. Um, that was at a Mohawk camp in Ontario. It was the Ontario Provincial Police. Um, a convoy police moved in after about eight hours um, after the midnight deadline. They Apparently they'd been negotiating and still um, hadn't come to a solution. The demonstrators were outnumbered, a clash erupted, there was one person with minor injuries, ten people faced charges, protesters planned to stay, and one said that it's time for Canada to know what it's like to be invaded. And their leadership race, the Liberals keep shooting themselves, <laughs> launching uh, again this race with uh, all kinds of challenges uh, that we have raised about the need for democratic reform, accountability, I, transparency, I, all of that kind of good stuff. I really feel though like we need to talk more about Tech Frontier and the, the carbon tax and what went down before we get to the Liberal leadership race. Um, there was a $20 billion oil sands project that was cancelled which promised thousands of high paying jobs and local benefits while the Alberta economy is suffering. The, the company says there's no path forward for them. They're at the nexus of a much broader national discussion was the, how they framed it. But what they haven't said is the price of oil is tanking. What it reminded me of is the early 1980s when Pierre Trudeau was uh, uh, under attack because you know the, the collapsing uh, national energy policy the, the, and, and, and the policy which was being blamed by 
the oil firms themselves. But again, a lot of this has to do with the, the falling prices for oil. It really, they're, they're swiping at the government and trying to position themselves in order to force government to do the kinds of policy things that they like. Uh, but again, it, it really is about the collapse of the, of the markets themselves. Well, the, uh, this means the cabinet doesn't have to make a decision on, uh, on the tech frontier. Yes. And uh, what that means is that uh, they've put off the evil hour when they have to decide. At the moment, the way government has presented it is it's simultaneously a f- friend of the fossil fuel industry and also acting on climate change. And uh, this has now, at some point, they're going to have to choose a side uh, and um, the cabinet has now ha- ha- put that evil hour off. And I think the MPs are delighted about this. And it raises questions about where does power lie? Because the decision was actually made by the fossil fuel producers as opposed to government, uh, who were watching and, and probably glad they didn't have to make this decision. But the non-decision is a policy decision. And the next um, decision is going to be made by the Supreme Court of Canada next month. So we had a, a ruling coming out of the Appeal Court in Alberta, 4-1, to against the federal carbon tax. They said it intrudes on provincial jurisdiction uh, and it opens up unlimited federal interference, which is kind of typical of how our courts work. They, they've never liked the federal government. Um, Alberta says they agree we need to reduce emissions, but they must be allowed to do it in their own way because, yeah, sure, that's going to happen. <laughs> um, but, yeah, all this comes to a head uh, next month in front of the Supreme Court of Canada. Federalism complicates decision-making. We have different policies for the offshore than we do for the north or in British Columbia. Uh, So federalism really kind of constrains and makes it very difficult to focus on citizens and in the earth. It makes it very difficult for us to come together to, you know, address or deal with issues or problems um, because it really is all about territoriality and leaving it to each of the regions or the premiers to make their own decisions. And that's really counterproductive. We're all suffering as a consequence of that. So I think this is a very clear uh, challenge in terms of function versus form. I was just going to say that, uh, I, I mean, and this is, this is your area, Steve, as well, is uh, the, uh, if this is also a symptom of uh, real problems we have uh, with uh, Canadian federalism. That uh, if we're talking about democratic reform, we have to think as well about uh, how we reform democracy uh, and Canadian federalism at the same time. These we are all need interlinked. Federal reform and democratic reform. We need together. both. They are part of one. Part of the same thing. And I think it, it highlights um, all those issues together, highlight everything we've been talking about, like the, the issues of natural resources, climate change, reconciliation, all of those are coming together right now. And it's really becoming clear that the, the federal government has really only been halfway in on reconciliation and addressing climate change. And they're going to have some really hard questions to answer going forward about natural resources developments. We predicted much of this yes, <laughs> as yes. that's unfolding. <laughs> So, yeah, Steve, you wanted to talk about the Premier's leadership race. Well, it, it, it's really kind of ironic. I mean, the, the Premier decides to, to step down. It was his choice. It was, you know, the, the party presenting this idea that there's going to be a fair race. Well, it's a race which has really created all kinds of controversies in terms of the costs of, you know, entering into the race. Uh, it, it, it is a, a challenge or problem in terms of the, the timing. It's, it's it, you know, especially in a context of bad decisions and bad behavior in the past, which has actually led us to where we are currently. Uh, Even this idea that we're going to rely upon the Democratic Reform Committee, 
the democratic reform has been around for, for a long time. Uh, the, the liberals decided to do nothing except establish a committee which has really not had the resources to do anything. So I think this is really kind of not sending out a very good message to make it a, a, a race which has created more controversy than it has, I think, enthusiasm. And um, just to go over the numbers, it's going to happen on May 9th, which is like 74 days from now, um, which is not very much time, really, when you're choosing a premier. Uh, the fees for entry are $25,000. That's up from 20000 last time. Uh, the really interesting thing is you need to put 15000 forward up front, which is three times the initial entry fee last time. You had to put 5000 in up front. But, you know, once again, it highlights, you know, the, I guess, the disconnect between what the public wants, which is campaign finance reform. They want money out of politics. And this, what's looking like it's going to be a very elite kind of cor rushed coronation um, in choosing our next premier. Um, and, you know, they're putting a lot of money into it, obviously. Uh, it's going to be great political theater, but where's the policy discussions? <laughs> Yeah, and uh, you know it's uh, you know, it all seems to be a backdoor uh, bringing back in quality um, property qualifications, which means that my, the nineteenth-century history uh, that I did at high school will be relevant again. And this idea that you actually have to raise money to be in politics is insulting, uh, and as broad as really where we are currently, yeah. or this idea that they can't be accountable or, or transparent. Uh, they should have made clear rules. They don't have to change the laws. They could have come up with a game which was more open transparent, accountable, and really fair, a fair competition. But we didn't have the conversation. But we also have to remember at the end of the day, this was a party decision. They decided what the process would be. It has created disadvantages, not only for the candidates now who have to go out and sell the party, uh, but it has generated, I think, a lot of negative commentary and a lot of frustration in a province which is already suffering from a huge democratic deficit. So they should have used this as an opportunity to kind of to change the signal. But to a large extent, they've reinforced some of the old negative ideas which are associated with people who don't trust parties and they don't see them as agents of change. Is, um, am I right? Uh, you guys would know this better than I would, but uh, it's discretionary whether they uh, a candidate says where they got the 25000 yes. from. Yeah, it's discretionary. So there's yeah. no clear set of standards or rules in terms of identifying yeah. who was contributing, uh, who was you know, basically providing who, the support yeah. to, to, to who put owes, you into power. Yeah. Who owes who a favor. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, it sets us up for right off the bat for a premier who's going to be holding to major business interests. Well, that's uh, the danger. And again, in, in the past, we've seen a lot of decisions which haven't been within the public interest. They've been in the interests of those who were basically uh, gaining from that decision. And we need more transparency, more accountability. And there's no excuse in terms of waiting, in terms of some report coming from Democratic Committee, because they themselves have decided to do nothing when it comes to democratic reform. And the time is time is not now. The time was, should have been uh, five years ago. But, but the fact that we're not doing these kinds of things reinforces this idea that the status quo continues to exist and people need to fight back and contest to make sure that democratic reform is the priority of whoever serves, uh, you know, or whoever goes into government. Well, the argument is they don't have time to take it to the membership. Um, but apparently the, the previous, uh, the current premier ran on this or he stated on um, 
uh, CBC that um, you should have to release your donors list. There's been two meetings of membership, two um, liberal conventions since then, and this was not brought to the membership to change. Um, and there was another one coming up in June, which has now been put off till November. Um, so the, there's not a, a whole lot of political will there to make that change. And speaking of elitism and politics, how about those Democratic primaries? Oh, now we go over to the, <laughs> to the foreign news desk. <laughs> So um, we've got a front runner, Bernie Sanders. He pulled together an interesting coalition in Nevada. Uh, at this stage, he's the most likely candidate to get the plurality of votes. Super Tuesday, also known as Political Science Christmas, is mm -hmm. coming on March 3rd. Uh, Bernie is polling ahead in Vermont, California, Utah, and Colorado. He's above average in Maine. The states to watch are Texas, North Carolina, Virginia, and Tennessee. Um, those are the ones that will determine whether he has a great Super Tuesday or a not-so-great Super Tuesday. Well, he's got the Russians behind him, according to Bernie, although he reported rather late. <laughs> well, and that means Trump wants to run against Bernie, right? Is what that exactly, means. exactly. And uh, finally, Trump's pardons. He granted clemency to 11 individuals. There were four pardons and four commutations. Uh, many of them for white-collar crime, so we know he's soft on white-collar crime. He didn't provide any details of his deliberations um, or explain his decisions. He did call one decision ridiculous. He relied on recommendations from the Justice Department, which with Trump is probably a good thing. He seems to be weaponizing everything and interfering in everything. Uh, again, we've talked a lot about executive abuse of power and, and domination, and many of his actions are really kind of the actions that you would see in an authoritarian regime as opposed to a democracy. And it's, it's really terrifying some of the things that he's doing. And uh, just, uh, I think, just to finish off, I mean, we've, uh, we've this time stayed very much in North America, but I just wanted to, to highlight uh, the, uh, the attack in Germany, which is causing a, um, a lot of discussion in Germany about uh, the role of the far right uh, and the way that the far right, and, um, and particularly the uh, alternative for Deutschland, a Germany party, has been uh, whipping up um, anti-immigrant, anti-foreigner uh, rhetoric. Uh, but also the same time as uh, Trump's visit, but linked also to a whole series of internal uh, issues, particularly a, a law being put forward by the Prime Minister, uh, the riots in India, and some of them have been really quite horrific. Uh, and uh, there have been um, uh, claims of abuse by the police against, against rioters. Anyway, we should keep an eye on, the, on both of those. So we'll take a break. Uh, when we return, we'll be joining our, our first guest, and Robin will be here talking about uh, inequality and the role of the university in social mobility in this province. Making government work for us. Podco will be right back. Looking for a fun volunteering opportunity with a wide variety of weekly activities? Do you like mentoring girls to challenge themselves and put their ideas into action while making new friends in your community? Then Girl Guides of Canada is the place for you. As a volunteer guider, you'll be the key to providing girls aged 5 to 17 with the fun and challenge of guiding in an inclusive, all-female environment. You'll also have the opportunity to enjoy the outdoors, give back to your community, and even apply for scholarships. So what are you waiting for? Girl greatness starts here. Call 1-800-565-8111 or visit girlguides.ca today and join us.
Broadcasting to the world via MP3 stream at www.chmr.ca, you're tuned to Mun Radio, 93.5 CHMR-FM, your only music alternative. Now back to Podco, making government work for us, with Lori Leos, Luke Ashworth, and Stephen Tomlin. And now it's our pleasure to introduce our next guest, uh, Dr. Uh, Robin Whitaker, who is an associate professor in anthropology here at, uh, at MUN. She's also the past president of the MUN Faculty Association, which is the faculty union. She's a member of the Canadian Association of University Teachers Executive Committee. She's a board member and columnist for the Independent, uh, a, a newspaper here in Newfoundland and Labrador. And she sits on the Canadian board of uh, Women Help Women. And uh, Robin's research is focused on political anthropology, democracy, human rights, feminism, uh, among many other issues. So first off, I'd like to welcome you, Robin. Thanks. Glad to be here. So why don't we start out? Because inequality is such, um, I guess, a loose concept. It means lots of different things to different people. Why don't you tell us what your understanding is of inequality um, and what has helped you to form those views? Okay, uh, big question to start with. <laughs> um, I'm going to give a little bit of an anthropologist answer to this uh, because we always say that context is everything. So when we talk about equality or inequality, I think we need to be thinking about what context and what frame we're talking about. You know, are we talking about national, cross-national, institutional, and so on? If we think about the o- Occupy movement, you know, their slogan, we are the 99%. That really usefully got people thinking about consolidated wealth and political power in a new way. And I think uh, much of the the discussion today really kind of references that sort of new framework, that new political framework that we're thinking in. And I think that kind of very inclusive uh, perspective is really helpful for um, movement politics. But of course, you know, we, we are political actors in many different contexts. And so the question of what we're talking about you know, it matters. Are we talking about the university? Are we talking about the province, the country, and so on? There's clearly there are connections between all of those contexts, but you know, a particular contexts require particular kinds of responses. Um, something that did, uh, I think, make me think about equality and inequality in perhaps, uh, if not a new way, then in a new way politically was my involvement in the Northern Ireland Women's Coalition. That was uh, a political party that um, stood for, it, the first election they stood for was the election to the, the peace negotiations. Um, their uh, central core principles were equality, inclusion, inclusion, and respect for human rights. And the way that those core principles worked in the Women's Coalition was precisely that none of those, um, none of those core values are self-evident. They're what we might call essentially contested concepts, use a a phrase that uh, the philosopher W.B. Galley coined. And and an essentially contested concept is a concept where its meaning depends on its continual debatability. If we try to fix its meaning, then we destroy its very meaning. So I think it's much like democracy. I mean, democracy is another good example of that. Something else that that time really taught me is that we really have to resist any sort of idea that 
freedom and equality are at odds with each other. I'm giving quite an abstract answer here. <laughs> Ask an academic a question. <laughs> yeah. But I think this is very important, you know, to think about because they often are opposed as oppositional values. But uh, in my mind, true freedom and true equality are really each other's enabling conditions, much like uh, Oscar Wilde said in the, the Soul of Man Under Socialism, that you couldn't have true individualism without socialism because only through socialism would individuals be freed to truly pursue their own ends. Now, I mean, of course, you know, there's lots of debates. Um, about what it, you know, what inequality means, and so on. I'll just sort of end with one last thing. I think um, we often hear uh, liberal versions of equality. It's kind of a common sense, you know, and that equality is about treating all people the same. Clearly, that's not the case. Um, if we were all the same, we wouldn't need to be talking about equality. It wouldn't matter. And in my view, the only real measure of equality of opportunity is results. And if we haven't got something approximating equality of results we're very far from um, meeting the test of true opportunity of equality. Our Deputy Prime Minister, Christia Freeland, mm -hmm. talked about unions uh, and how during the Cold War uh, mm -hmm. they were powerful in an effort to prevent the rise of communism in the West. Mm -hmm. uh, unions are no longer that powerful. Uh, can you describe your experience as a union organizer and the role that unions can play in combating inequality? Right. Um, I mean, that uh, quote from Christia Freeland, I'm not sure what context, uh, you know, it came from. Of course, you know, the quote itself, uh, how you respond to it depends on what you mean by communism. <laughs> mm. um, and I think what we have to remember that um, that mid-20th century period that you just referenced, uh, you know, that context for that was the utter failure of capitalism. The people who were involved in making these very important changes that that time had witnessed uh, the very worst that capitalism could bring us and the the collapse of any kind of a notion that capitalism was going to work for the common good. Um, so I, I think it's really important to remember that. I also think we have to be very careful when we use phrases like communism because of the way they were used at the time. Many of the people who were uh, labeled communists at the time did not identify themselves as communists. It was a catch-all kind of, um, you know, label for political dissenters of many different kinds, and even people who refused to denounce their friends or their colleagues. So I just wanted to sort of frame things in that way. That moment, though, of sort of corporate unionism, um, you're right, it's gone. Um, I think, again, you know, that moment... Uh, we need to think about it historically. It, it's not, it wasn't only unions. It was a, a wider kind of movement uh, that brought us many other forms of uh, social security, unemployment insurance, which has since been relabeled and redefined um, in unfortunate ways, old age pensions, so on. Um, it also brought us the suburbs. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, we need to, we need to be um, questioning the sort of common sense about that as a golden age and its relationship to some of the, the challenges and crises that we face right now. Um, but in terms of um, the, the assault on the union movement that you've, you've mentioned, and it has been very effective, I think both in, in Canada and the U.S., there's been a very effective kind of politics of resentment that has been um, fostered, whereby instead of seeing the problem as a lack of, you know, universal uh, security or good jobs, 
the one, the few people who have a decent pension are seen as the problem, you know. And so I think we really have to start reframing things. Um, in many ways, the current state of capitalism is, is bringing us uh, closer, I think, to that earlier era that preceded that mid-century kind of compromise, as it's sometimes called. And so I think we need, as, as trade unionists um, and, part, and members of a union movement, we need to start thinking about the, the kinds of strategies of that earlier period, the social unionism and the internationalism that were so uh, important in countering um, th that, you know, that earlier moment. And we're starting to see some of that now, I think, um, in the teachers' unions in, for instance, Chicago and also Ontario, who are engaging in a form of trade unionism that we might call, or that is often called, bargaining for the common good or social unionism. So I think to the extent that the union movement is going to regain political power, that's the direction we have to move in. We need to be making common cause, working with new sets of allies, you know, seeing our interests as not being narrowly professional or corporate, but a much wider set of uh, social issues. You've been president of, of Mumford, the faculty union here, mm -hmm. and, you, and you recently were part of a group from Mumford that penned a letter to the editor of The Telegram on cuts at Memorial. Mm -hmm. uh, this university was created to ensure that every Newfoundlander and Labradorian had an opportunity to receive a university education. Mm -hmm. uh, our low tuition recently has become a target uh, because of cuts in the university. Mm -hmm. What are your views on the role that the university can play in social mobility and achieving equality in the province? Right. Well, uh, I'm one of those Newfoundlanders who wouldn't be here without Memorial and I'm I'm one of uh, many people and I would say you know some of the government ministers and uh, civil servants who are keen on on cutting the university's operating budgets should think about what enabled them to get where they are as well I mean there are many many of them most of them probably who got their education at MUN um, I uh, you know I left uh, Newfoundland to go to grad school outside the province and I felt so lucky to get a job when I came back here because you know I really feel I would not be where I was without Memorial and I wanted everyone in this province to have the same opportunity I had you know I didn't grow up in a family that you know talked about anthropology I didn't know what it was before I came to Mun I would I really I wouldn't be here I would not be an anthropology prof if it hadn't been for Memorial University and I think it's it's really vital that we protect that opportunity for for everyone in the province. Um, you know, in terms of uh, the question about, I think there are two really important things to say here. In terms of the question about equality and social mobility, uh, clearly, you know, universities and accessible uh, public education of all levels are absolutely vital. We don't allow private health care in this country um, because we see it as fundamentally uh, unjust and unequal and and a, a means you know we see that a coexisting private health system will undermine the public system I, I think we have to think about public education in the same way it has to be given you know absolute priority um, it uh, you know uh, of course uh, higher education is a good in itself and I hesitate to reduce it to a kind of means to an end sort of formula but we do know that countries with higher levels of post-secondary education tend to be more equal. They also tend to have better public health indicators. Um, so equality extends you know, beyond simple monetary or income issues. Um, but the second, I think, really important issue to raise is the, 
the role that this university has played in fostering a culture of of critique and public intellectualism and I, I mean we were talking about the independent earlier the independent certainly you know would not be what it is without people who had been educated at memorial uh hans rollman justin brake drew brown numerous columnists um then we think about people like dave vardy um, and des sullivan who've been such important critics of muskrat falls you know all went to memorial so you know that i think is vital um in terms of tuition increases, you know, to go back to that question, you know, I can understand why Mun's senior administration is attracted to the idea. We're really suffering here. The university's operating budget has been, or operating grant has been, uh, you know, significantly uh, cut um, since the, the kind of 2016 period of austerity really took hold. Um, but I, I think it's really a false economy. Anything that creates a barrier to people going to university is going to, you know, interfere with that wider goal of, of social mobility and, um, uh, uh, you know, and also, you know, if we, if we are going to talk in these instrumentalist terms, it's not going to help us out in the future. It's the tax revenues depend on having an educated uh, general public. Uh, our ability to, um, you know, innovate, to use a trendy term, depends on a, an a widely educated uh, general public. Uh, the, the current sort of tech industry and the, the entrepreneurial turn that our government is embracing so much would not exist without Memorial. So I think it's very short-sighted to think about, you know, cutting, cutting vital uh, funds to the university. We know that inequality has grown since the 1980s as um, the service economy expands. Mm -hmm. We have more people now working in precarious low-wage jo jobs with no benefits. There's a debate going on in the province right now about minimum wage. What are your views on, um, I guess, that move to a service economy and in, um, the in potential to increase the minimum wage right now? Right. Well, I mean, to me, raising minimum wage is a no-brainer. <laughs> I mean, I think it's to our collective shame that people could, could be working full-time um, and still live in poverty. I mean, that, you know, there's something, we just have to think about that for a minute to see how, how wrong that is. Um, I'm, you know, it was nice to hear that minimum wage is going to be raised a bit, but I don't think that the recent announcement goes nearly far enough. I mean, it's nowhere near bringing people to a living wage. But of course, um, you know, your hourly wage is only one part of the package. I and mean, what we people really need is security, right? And, uh, and you know, we, we need to remember that many minimum, well, first of all, I think we should remember that how many people in this province are working at, at or near minimum wage. And this is not just, you know, as some people like to sort of suggest, you know, college students, uh, earning a bit of extra money or, you know, people who have another source of income sort of earning pin money as it used to be called. I mean, this is, you know, people who are trying to survive on an inadequate wage. Um, but I think also, you know, we need to remember that many minimum wages are hourly. If you don't work, you don't get paid. They often don't have um, associated benefits or pensions attached to them. Um, and we're seeing um, even relatively privileged workers um, under increased pressure and finding it difficult to retire when they'd like to because retirement means the end of um, any access to health insurance. Um, they don't have a, a, you know, a secure pension and so on. So I think um, we need to 
we absolutely need to push for an increase in minimum wage. It's a vital first step, and it's you know something that can immediately improve things for people. Um, but at the same time, it's it's not enough, and we need to be having a wider set of conversations about you know um, security at every stage, and no matter what your circumstances are. Um, so I think you know, and maybe a discussion about guaranteed incomes is part of that. I know that it's. Um, I know that there's a debate about guaranteed incomes, but I think, you know, done the right way, uh, they can be a very, very important uh, tool. And uh, they certainly have the benefit of, uh, of um, giving people some control over uh, their choices. Yeah. And I just wanted to say, too, that apparently there's like 70,000 people in Newfoundland and Labrador who work for minimum wage, and there's lots more who are like just kind of right above minimum wage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right, yeah, yeah. And I mean, if we looked at, you know, the distribution of those jobs, too, I think we would find that they're not uh, sort of randomly distributed. They're, they're, you know, many women work in um, part-time service work. Uh, so, you know, certain groups are disproportionately affected. Robin, you, uh, in the past, you've also been critical of our society's over-reliance on charity, um, especially uh, the two that stand out, I think, is uh, billionaire philanthropy and food banks. Mm -hmm. um, why do you think this reliance is a problem? Well, I mean, I think in many ways this question connects to all the earlier ones, including Steve's question about communism <laughs> um, and, uh, and the role of trade unions and so on. But, I mean, to me, you know, there are numerous problems with relying on charity to kind of fill the gap that we, well, that we were just talking about in relation to minimum wage. You know, it's, first of all, it's an inherently unequal relationship. I mean, that is something that we have to face up to. Um, you know, Strindberg said that all charity is humiliating. And, you know, I, I don't want to uh, go too far with that, but I think we do need to think about that. You know, for those who are um, compelled to receive rather than to have their basic needs looked after as of right. I mean, we are very, we live in a very wealthy, um, uh, we live in a very wealthy country, and I think we should all feel somewhat humiliated that uh, we're in this situation where food banks, which are historically very recent um, phenomenon in this country, we have to remember they've become so much a part of the landscape that we forget that they actually only really came into being in the 1980s, and they were at the time seen as a short-term measure to deal with the crisis. They have become um, a kind of subsidy to low-wage uh, jobs and um, and to an insufficient uh, security uh, net. So I think you know that's in itself a reason to um, feel very am ambivalent at best about uh, charity. I mean, and I, I'm of course I want to say generosity is better than meanness. <laughs> but um, I do think we need to be clear-eyed about what it works, or how it works, and what it does, and what it doesn't do. Um, I think uh, two other key points that I'd like to make about this is um, charity tends to depoliticize. In fact, a requirement of being a charitable organization in this country is that you not be political. And so then you can have people say that things like food banks are non-political. And what does that do, you know? <laughs> we, they should be absolutely the most political kinds of questions. You know, we, it, the idea that they're, a, they're simply a good, I mean, I, it's, how did we get to this point? I, I really think, um, so this is a, a crucial thing. 
Um, they also um, leave the direction of charity in the hands of uh, philanthropists, um, uh, you know, who can uh, indulge um, their whims in terms of where they direct their money. So uh, I think, you know, n nobody voted for Bill Gates, um, mm. <laughs> right? <laughs> Uh, you know, and great, he's he's giving away lots of his money, but wouldn't it be far better to tax the wealthy fairly to start with um, and then uh, use that revenue for the common good rather than handing out charitable tax receipts to people <laughs> mm. um, uh, who are, you know, again, you know, perhaps some of them are doing great work, but there's really no control on where it goes. And they, they do set the... The conditions on what happens with their money. So I think there are there are multiple problems with uh, with charity, but they're um, they're inseparable from all the other kinds of questions we've been talking about. Well, well thank you, Robin. Yeah. Uh, one of the things we're trying to do is talk about inequality and make it political, Paco. <laughs> and you've you've contributed a, a great deal to that. We want to hear from you. How has inequality affected you and your community? What are its roots, and how can it be solved? You can follow. Uh, the show on Twitter, our Twitter handle is at podco1. Like us on Facebook page, podco, chmr. And our email address is podco, chmr, at gmail.com. We'll take a break. When we return, we'll be joined by our second guest, Kerry Claire Neal. So we'll be back to ask her about the growing problem of inequality. Making government work for us. Podco will be right back. If you're a chronic nostalgic who loves the music of Newfoundland and Labrador, tune in to the Newfound Records Radio Hour on CHMR, Saturdays at noon. Join host Wayne Tucker as he shines a light on rare gems retrieved from the vinyl deeps and supplements the music of the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s with a generous sprinkling of history and trivia. We live all kinds of local music, traditional, folk, country, pop, rock, and everything in between. So whether you're a sentimental old-timer who's stuck in a vinyl groove, or a newbie eager to hear hard-to-find roots music of Newfoundland and Labrador, tune in to the Newfound Records Radio Hour on Saturdays at noon, where the unexpected is the norm. Listen to over 500 radio stations from anywhere in Canada with Radio Player Canada, the must-have app that's as Canadian as you are. Smart, lovable, easygoing, fits in anywhere. From early morning hockey practices to late night after parties, enjoy every type of radio station anywhere, anytime. Listen through your phone, Sonos, Google Chromecast, Google Home, Amazon Echo, Apple CarPlay, and Android Auto. Download the Radio Player Canada app today. It's where Canadian radio plays. If you think there's any better alternative radio station in Newfoundland and Labrador, well, I think you're wrong. You're listening to 93.5 CHMR. Making government work for us with Lori Leos, Luke Ashworth, and Stephen Tomlin. 
Welcome back to Podco, making government work for us. I'm honored to introduce our next guest, Carrie Claire Neal. Carrie completed a master's degree in sociology and an undergraduate degree in economics right here at Memorial University. She is currently the communications coordinator with the On the Move partnership with Dr. Barbara Neese. She's actively involved with the Social Justice Co-op, including her work on climate change, transit, and inequality. She ran for the NDP in uh, 2018 in the Windsor Lake by-election, and it's great to have her here with us today. Welcome, welcome, Kerry. Thanks for having okay. me. Yeah, and for the for the first question, let's keep it general. Um, based on both your research and experience, what do you think are the main issues uh, around inequality uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador today, and uh, how should we address them? I think uh, you know, in our province, we see a lot of different types of inequality. I think you know, the first thing that comes to mind is income inequality, where we have some people who are working minimum wage, living in poverty. Uh, while we have others that are living you know, very luxurious lives, buying entire communities. Um, and so we see pretty extreme income inequality there. But I think that we also have social inequalities. For example, indigenous um, peoples make up a minority of our population, but are the majority of people that are in foster care system or homeless. Um, and I think you know we also see class inequalities, uh, where some people are kind of born into poverty and, and get kind of stuck there, while others uh, inherit huge amounts of waste uh, wealth, and um, which is maybe a waste, and uh, you know are able to lead political parties because of their connections and uh, their backgrounds. So I think I think there are different types of inequalities that we see. And and I think that it's going to require um, pretty big system change to to address those. I think um, the way that colonialism and capitalism have really gotten hold of of this province in this country um, has really entrenched those inequalities. And so it's going to take um, some pretty uh, you know groundbreaking uh, grassroots uh, kind of change to to create a system where, where people are cared for equally and have equal opportunity. It's always great having former students. <laughs> <laughs> I think everybody's anyway, one of my former students, but both you and Alexandria Cortez have spoken a lot about billionaires and why they shouldn't exist. Why do you believe that? Yeah, I think, um, I, th I know myself and I think AOC have been both really inspired by Bernie Sanders. I will say it's really exciting to see the way that he is um, kind of sticking it to the establishment and uh, has been really doing well in these like Democratic primaries. I'm, I'm wishing him the best. Um, and I think a lot of that discussion actually really came out of like the Occupy movement and, and this whole 1% versus we are the 99%. And, and this idea that, you know, I think to have rich people, you have to have poor people. And when you have extremely rich people, you have extremely poor people. And this idea that some people are able to amass just huge, ridiculous amounts of wealth that like you could never spend, you could never really use, you're just hoarding it. Um, you know, you could say that you're investing in companies and stocks, but a lot of that uh, money isn't really being circulated around the economy. And, and um, I think it's, because some people are hoarding it, you know, we do have a finite amount of wealth, even though we keep extracting more natural resources to try and take more, and that's creating huge ecological problems for our planet. Um, I think if some people have the majority of the pie, it means that the rest of us are kind of uh, struggling to get a few crumbs. And I think 
that uh, if we were going to address inequalities in our society, then tackling the people who have, like, the billionaires, I think, are just, like, symbolically, um, you know, just when you think about a billion dollars, like hundreds of millions of dollars, it's hard to even comprehend like how much money that is. And, and I don't think anyone deserves that much money or um, made it in a way that didn't exploit huge numbers of people. I think it's inherently unjust um, to, to amass that kind of wealth. So I think uh, billionaires are a good place to kind of start when we're talking about how do we create a more equal system. Okay. Um, one of the ways you and I bonded on Twitter was over the work of Thomas Piketty. And uh, you regularly talk about him. And he's like, you know, the preeminent economist of our time. And I really don't know why more people don't read him. But uh, what is it you like about his work? And which of his, his principles do you believe we should implement? Uh, I read Piketty, like, I guess his P, uh, book, uh, Capital, came out uh, just after the Occupy movement, and so there was a lot of talk about the 1% and the 99% then. And, and what I like about Pickett is he, he not only talks about the 1%, but the 0.1% and the 0.01% who have just ridiculous amounts of money, and, and how he shows that uh, those people were often um, people who had massed kind of great fortunes in the past and were like um, the, heiress, the heirs and the heiresses of that. And because their money was kind of tied up in capital and like stocks and bonds, um, they were accumulating their the return on that investment was a lot greater than the return on labor. So people who are working like we've seen wages really stagnate over the past like 40, 50 years, whereas the return on capital on stocks and and bonds um, has really risen. And that's really benefited those who are have the most wealth. Um, and who have their the money kind of tied up in these financial instruments. Um, and so it was pretty uh, powerful, I think, for him to kind of tease that out and, and show just how extreme the, uh, the wealth gap was. And he argues, um, it was really interesting, he has this kind of global solution for it because the 0.1%, the 0.01%, they just have so much money, they can't really be... Um, tied down to a single country like they are very mobile and they can move their money um and he kind of argues that we need this like global tax on the wealthy um and tying that into some other stuff i've seen about uh, climate change is this like global problem uh, how do we address it like is it possible that we could have this like global tax on the wealthy that was kind of used to solve this like global problem of climate change um, is like an interesting idea I've been thinking about I think it would maybe work really hard in practice um, to get all the countries to agree to that um, but I think you know if we are going to tackle um, yeah this global elite then um, coming up with instruments to 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 tease out their money is going to be important yeah. Yeah, I was quite Im impressed by uh, the way that he f he flipped from uh, income uh, to capital mm. and the role that capital plays. And uh, past similar periods where um, uh, it, your best your best road to wealth was through capital and capital ownership rather than income, which of course been the opposite of what we'd had in the late twentieth century, I, which I thought was very was was an interesting approach uh, to take. Yeah, yeah, I think the richest family in Italy right now is the richest family in the 1700s. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just to give an idea of, like, yeah, how old that money is. Yeah. I remember he has that section on uh, Balzac, I think, where he talks about one of the characters from, uh, from, from a novel who says that the, the best way to get rich is to marry. Right. To marry rich. <laughs> 
So, uh, but anyway, um, uh, moving on from individuals uh, to, uh, to to look to corporations, uh, you, you've also talked uh, about the need to tax large corporations, uh, particularly at the federal level. Um, uh, why do you believe that, uh, uh, that we can do that, uh, and how should we do that? I think um, it's really important to tax uh, big corporations, and I think the rich at the federal level, um, because I think what we're seeing is... Um, a lot of wealth gets concentrated in these like global cities. Um, I've read a lot by like Saskia Sassan. She's this like sociologist who's been looking at kind of global capitalism and the way that it kind of is um, happening in these global cities. She looks at Toronto, uh, sorry, New York, London, and Tokyo. Uh, but I think here in Canada, we have are kind of similarly have uh, Toronto, Vancouver, and to some extent Montreal, which are like the places where the corporate headquarters are, where um, all the financial decision making happens, like your Wall Street, your Bay Street. Um, and so we're seeing huge amounts of wealth kind of being um, accumulated and amassed in these cities. And it, it makes sense that like, you know, it's not fun being rich if you can't like flaunt it to your rich friends so the rich want to live together and uh, have access to the nice restaurants and the stores and, and friends that they can like show off their wealth to. And so I think, um, and, and I would say like these corporate headquarters, so for example, if the Tim Hortons corporate headquarters is in um, Toronto, they're amassing wealth throughout Canada, through all their franchises and, and all the work that's happening everywhere, but it's kind of being um, amassed in like one city. And I think it's important to, to share that wealth across the province because it's, it's getting taken from really across the globe. Um, but we can't, we're, we're, you know, we're limited to our borders. Um, and so I think if we're going to, to tax the rich and tax the big corporations, it has to be at a, at a federal level. And I think, you know, there are arguments that like, well, if we tax the rich, they'll leave. Um, but I, I don't really believe that. I think, you know, they're going to still want to be, they're still going to be corporate headquarters in Canada. We're still going to need our CEOs. Those jobs are still going to exist um, within our borders. And I think there's still a lot of opportunity. And again, like the rich want to hang out with each other and they want to socialize with each other. And I think if we did a better job of cracking down where they're hiding their money and making sure that they're actually paying their taxes, um, then we could um, better distribute and utilize that, those resources. So this question reminds me of Doug Hoax, who was in sociology at Memorial and he had big concerns of, in terms of guaranteeing income and doing that through public policy. So you're an advocate of universal uh, basic income. Uh, uh, why is it that uh, and what do you think of the latest move to increase the minimum wage in this province? I, I am a big fan of the universal basic income. Uh, in Canada, we do actually have one for seniors, the guaranteed income supplement. Um, but there has, there's a lot of stigma, I think, around giving it to working people. There's like this idea that, well, if we just give people money, they'll stop working, they'll be lazy. Um, and I don't necessarily think that's true. I think people do like want to be productive and like take care of their family. Um, but if we had a universal basic income, then I think it would give people more options. Uh, maybe if you know their health wasn't great, they could work part time. Maybe they could go to school, start a business. Um, you know, feel have have more freedom in in their economic 
decision making, um, which I think is exactly why the government doesn't want to do it. Um, because, you know, if we didn't have to, if we weren't desperately begging for a job, maybe we would be more likely to go to a protest or uh, get involved in our community and, and activism. Um, I went to a really great presentation by Robin Bodeway from Queen's University. Um, the economics department brought him in. And he looked at the Canadian tax system and found that if we got rid of social assistance and refundable and non-refundable tax credits at the FET, like, and did it like across Canada, we would be able to afford like a universal basic income that was equal to the market-based measure of poverty, which right now is about $30,000 a year. And he shows that uh, refundable and non-refundable tax credits, like they really benefit the rich more than the poor because like you need to kind of have that capital up front and be able to be reimbursed by it. And even like, especially non-refundable tax credits, you know, like they don't even apply to you if you don't have like a certain income. And by having these tax credits, it allows people, especially the rich, to kind of um, choose where they want their money to go instead of it being like kind of democratically distributed by government. Um, so they're able to say, well, you know, I really care about this charity, so I'm going to give my money to them and then um, use that to not pay taxes. And so I think if we, um, we could just get rid of that system and give everyone a universal basic income um, with, I think, you know, he shows that there would be some clawback as you start making money. Um, but I think it would it would give people like the freedom that um, to to kind of pursue their dreams that I don't think that we have right now. Um, talking about you know the minimum wage, it was just increased, but it is still a poverty wage. Mm. And I think you know there are people who are working full time who are just desperately living in poverty, um, especially when you look at like single parents um, and and people who are trying to raise uh, or have dependents. And so I think a universal basic income would give those people more options and maybe even force um, companies to pay people more because I guess, if, you know, if you're working full time and it's less than uh, you would get as a universal basic income, then you probably wouldn't work there. It's kind of a strange system. I mean, we know that social determinants matter the most when it comes to health. Uh, we don't mind subsidizing hospitals and docks, but we have some concern about actually feeding people, uh, which is really, I think, uh, problematic and, 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 and troubling. Mm-hmm. And we're really subsidizing big corporations like McDonald's and Tim Hortons and Walmart. Like, you know, a lot of people in these conversations like to point to the small business and say, well, well you don't want, we don't want to put them out of work, out of, uh, um, out of business. But I think it's really the big corporations that are benefiting the most from our from these decisions and i think it is a corporate handout when you look at like how poverty has all these uh, health problems and it's the government that has to come in and pay for that so um i think we're really subsidizing big corporations and and making it harder for the people who actually live here and if we don't feed them we'll have to pay for the health costs mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah it's also a, a a shift isn't it from uh, think, thinking of people in kind of the old paradigm of uh, that uh, people do work uh, and they're there they have to be forced into work so you you uh, they have to work and then they get paid but uh, actually we we're sort of moving away from that system the most important contribution that people usually can make economically is as consumers 
Uh, and it is ironic as well that the universal basic income began as a, uh, a right-wing idea and a libertarian idea. Um, mm. So, uh, <laughs> and and I think that's where the left really criticizes it. Yeah, like, absolutely. You yeah. get that with uh, yeah. But look, thanks so much there, Kerry. I mean, we've uh, discussed. I think uh, it's a very complex issue: inequality uh, um, at individual level, national level, global level. And we didn't even touch issues like kind of offshore banking and so forth like that. But uh, thanks so much uh, for for coming and talking to us about this. We want to hear from you. Do you have questions about inequality in our society? Is universal basic income a solution to inequality? Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and express your opinions by sending them to our email address. Our Twitter handle is at podco1. Our Facebook is at podco chmr and our email address is podcochmr at gmail.com. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Podco making government work for us. We will leave you with a quote from Nelson Mandela, which I think is perfect uh, given what we've been discussing, who said, as long as poverty, injustice, and gross inequality persist in our world, none of us can truly rest. Until next time. Bye. Bye. If you have any questions or opinions on today's program, you can like Podco on Facebook, follow Podco on Twitter, or email your questions and opinions to podcochmr at gmail.com. This has been Podco with Lori Leotz, Luke Ashworth, and Stephen Tomlin.